Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. Wood-burning stoves are worsening pollution. That's what attorneys general from 10 different states say. They now plan to sue the Biden administration over its standards for such stoves. The White House is researching the idea of blocking some of the sun's light to fight climate change. But its new report comes with some serious warnings. Former President Trump draws a crowd of 50,000 to a small town in South Carolina. Find out what promise Trump made to attendees. A French mayor and town residents hold the gathering outside a burned town hall. The community is decrying the destruction caused in the widespread rioting. A man sues vaccine maker BioNTech over COVID vaccine side effects after he goes blind in one eye. Learn more about the first lawsuit of its kind in Germany. Multiple attorneys general plan to sue the Biden administration over wood-burning stoves. The states argue burning wood is worsening pollution. Here's what they say. Attorneys general from 10 states plan to sue the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. The states argue the EPA has failed to review and ensure emission standards for residential wood-burning stoves. The states involved are Alaska, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. They say the EPA allowing the continued sale of wood-burning stoves without ensuring emission standards could worsen pollution and that EPA programs that encouraged people to trade in older stoves hadn't improved air quality. The attorneys general sent a joint letter to the EPA saying, if newer wood heaters do not meet cleaner standards, then programs to change out old wood heaters may provide little health benefits at significant public cost. The EPA declined to comment on pending litigation. In February, the EPA's Office of Inspector General released a report on the EPA's performance standards for residential wood heaters. The report found that the standards were flawed and said the agency has approved methods that lack clarity and allow too much flexibility. And as a result, certification tests may not be accurate, do not reflect real-world conditions, and may result in some wood heaters being certified for sale that emit too much particulate matter pollution. The 10 attorneys general in their letter issued a 60-day notice with intent to sue if the EPA doesn't take the necessary steps. The White House has released a report on a radical climate change technique. It involves artificially blocking sunlight. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the strategy that experts say can have devastating effects on the planet. It's called solar radiation modification. People also call it solar geoengineering. The goal is to prevent sunlight from speeding up global warming. The report says greenhouse gases warm the climate by blocking some outgoing radiation that would normally be emitted out to space, while the technique cools the climate by reflecting more of the radiation back to space. The report admits that the side effects of such a technique are now poorly understood and also warns about several potential negative consequences, like a rise in sea levels, acidification of oceans, and altering rain patterns. It could also affect vegetation, crop production, and coral reefs. Climate Depot's publisher Mark Morano called the idea radical and risky on Fox News. This is actually Bill Gates funding this as well through Harvard University. Morano says the effects are unknown and believes the government is using it as a lever over people. Darn it, people aren't buying electric cars fast enough or they're not embracing Green New Deal policies, so we have to risk our entire planet with this insane kind of research. 
The White House says its publishing of the report on the technique does not signify any change in policy or activity by the Biden-Harris administration. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. An IRS whistleblower claims the investigation into Hunter Biden was stifled when it began to lead in President Biden's direction. For analysis of the whistleblower's statements, I spoke with Mark Ruskin, former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn and author of The Pretender, My Life Undercover for the FBI. Mark Ruskin, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Chris. Thank you for having me here. Mark, this IRS whistleblower said he was prevented from following certain leads that could have implicated President Biden. Explain that for us and the legal implications, if proven true. Well, it's really, uh, it has a historical significance because we've, I've never seen before a situation where you have one executive agency trying to put the stick in the wheels of another executive agency, which is trying to... Uh, conduct a legitimate investigation based on probable cause. I mean, the, the biggest uh, surprise to me was the refusal of the assistant U.S. attorney to authorize a search warrant that the IRS special agents wanted to execute on the storage lockers that were associated with uh, Hunter Biden. That is really uh, unprecedented. So you're saying there's a lot more to this story here. Yeah, there's really uh, a lot of undercurrents going on here. You know, I think you know the IRS has special agents which conduct fraud investigations. I think most of uh, the viewers probably don't realize that every agency of the federal government has special agents. You know, the Department of Agriculture has special agents, the Department of Labor has special agents, and the IRS has special agents. So they, they all have special agents, and all of them for the, for the most part, these are really dedicated individuals who are seeking to do justice. And to have the agents of the IRS prevented from conducting a legitimate investigation by the Department of Justice, which should be setting the standard for investigations, not trying to obstruct them, uh, really indicates that there are undercurrents here which are suspicious, to say the least. Now, Mark, Hunter Biden's attorney has dismissed this whistleblower as disgruntled. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, it's, it's natural that the uh, defense attorney is going to try to discredit witnesses against her client. I mean, that's the job of a defense attorney. So it's not a surprise. You know, they're not going to endorse the integrity of a witness that is going to harm their client. So, I mean, they're being paid to do that, but it, it's worth, it's not worth anything other than it's just smoke that's being uh, blown in order to uh, try and, and uh, insult the integrity of the, of the agents who, who are clearly dedicated and have a reputation for being uh, individuals of high integrity and, and you know, thorough investigators. Sure. Uh what questions do we still need answered in this situation? It's an evolving situation. I mean, what questions uh, need to be answered in terms of the acts of the Department of Justice? I mean, there are a lot of questions which w one would pose as to, you know, why is the IRS uh, investigation, the special agents of the IRS, 
why were they not allowed to proceed with the investigation as they do with any other criminal investigation? The bigger question would be why were they reassigned? Why was a whole squad of uh, agents who were working on this investigation, apparently making good progress, reassigned and, and taken off of the investigation? That is, uh, I've heard of that happening in other countries which have a, a less evolved system of justice, but I've never heard of that happening or rarely heard of that happening in the United States, where, where you have a, a, an investigation being blocked for no apparent legitimate reason. Well, thank you very much for that, Mark. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for inviting me. It's a always a pleasure to be here. Mark Ruskin, former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. Former President Trump is back to holding large-scale rallies. Sweltering heat in South Carolina over the weekend didn't stop a massive crowd of supporters from gathering to hear the presidential candidate speak. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the rally. Trump held his second large 2024 campaign rally in Pickens, South Carolina on Saturday. The small city is home to around 3,400 people. Close to three quarters of Pickens County voters chose Trump over Biden in 2020. There's nowhere else I'd rather be to kick off the 4th of July weekend than right here. Welcome to Pickens. Home state Republican Senator Lindsey Graham was booed and called a traitor when he took the stage before Trump. Graham's team addressed the poor reception by putting out a statement saying it's not the first time he's been booed and it probably won't be the last. Local officials estimated over 50,000 people attended the rally. Many supporters traveled from out of state to be there. Temperatures climbed into the 90s throughout the day. Trump campaign volunteers handed out free bottled water. Officials say close to 50 people were treated for heat-related illness. Some were taken to the hospital. Trump talked about the many cases against him and accused President Biden of being compromised and corrupt. He promised to investigate him if re-elected. When I get back, in office, I will appoint a real special prosecutor to investigate every detail of the Biden crime family of corruption. National polls have Trump leading the Republican primary race by a wide margin. A recent Reuters Ipsos poll showed roughly 43% of Republicans prefer Trump as a candidate. 22% prefer Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, barbecues, cookouts, and picnics are the most popular way to celebrate the 4th of July. NTD speaks with a smokehouse owner about the busy time of year for him. And $80,000 a year is considered low income in one California county, as the cost of living rises. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Fireworks sales are expected to reach record levels this holiday season, according to the American Pyrotechnics Association. It's a favorite July 4th pastime, but safety experts urge caution as the explosive devices can be extremely dangerous, even deadly. Here's more on what you need to know about fireworks to stay safe this Independence Day. From bottle rockets to aerial fireworks, 
Fun can turn dangerous in an instant if the explosive devices aren't properly used. Last year, we had at least 11 deaths associated with it and over 10,000 trips to the emergency room with fireworks-related injuries. The Consumer Product Safety Commission says many of those hurt by fireworks in the month around July 4th last year were children with sparklers accounting for about 600 of ER visits. 38% of the injuries were burns with hands, fingers, head, face, and ears most often hurt. Fireworks aren't toys and they're not for children. They're burning at 2,000 degrees, it's like a blowtorch. If you plan to set off your own fireworks, experts say to first make sure that they're legal in your area. Keep a bucket of water or hose handy in case of a fire. Light fireworks one at a time, then move back quickly. Never try to relight or pick up fireworks that haven't fully ignited and never use fireworks when under the influence. That's actually where we see a lot of the injuries and deaths associated with fireworks. Experts say the safest way to enjoy fireworks is to leave them to the professionals. You might see less fireworks in the sky this 4th of July. Several U.S. cities are swapping the Independence Day tradition with a drone light show. Salt Lake City, Utah tried out the alternative celebration over the weekend. The mayor said the new format was to minimize fire danger and lessen air quality problems. Other cities are also choosing the quieter and more environmentally friendly option, like in neighboring Colorado. The city of Boulder is opting for its first ever nighttime drone show, and in California, Lake Tahoe, La Jolla, and Ocean Beach are using drones to illuminate the sky with aerial animation and graphics instead of pyrotechnics. How are you celebrating your 4th of July holiday? One business owner says you can get a unique experience if you visit his store. Here's more from NTD Business's Don Ma. Here with me is Robbie Schultz. Um, so you're the owner of Bear Creek Smokehouse. You offer a lot of products like beef, sausages, chicken, and of course, Independence Day tomorrow. The National Retail Federation says the most popular way to celebrate 4th of July is to cook out, barbecue, or host a picnic. So I would imagine you must be pretty busy this time of year. Oh yeah, we're really busy this time of year. We had um, actually here Friday night, we had a huge fireworks display that we did for the public. And, you know, people coming out, picking up meats to grill and that sort of thing, sausage and a little bit of everything. It, we had a really big day on Friday. And, you know, tomorrow is actually the big day, but people like to prep ahead of time. What's the most popular product that people are purchasing? Well, you know, this time of year, Don, it's mostly sausages because people are wanting to cook out on their grill. And we have a German sausage and a Polish sausage, several other types have a jalapeno. A lot of people are picking those sausages up, you know, for sausage dogs for 4th of July. Yeah, and I see some of them uh, on your website. Uh, you're, you're saying put it, put some of those on, on barbecue sauce. It sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and they're, they're actually good by themselves, too. You can take those links and put them on the, on the grill and just warm them up. We've already smoked them and pre-cooked them for you. So all you got to do is give them about 10, 15 minutes on the smoker put them in a nice bun, put your favorite toppings on there, and they are ready to go, brother. Wow, wow, that sounds great. How, how much are they selling? How much are we selling? Well, it's hard to kind of keep track of it. I'm up here and outside on the farm a lot, but yeah, they've been blowing out the door here lately, for sure, for the holiday. Do people prefer to go to your store, or do they prefer to go to uh, bigger retail stores for their holiday barbecue? 
Well, I'm going to say people prefer to come to us because we're still out in the country. And, you know, uh, there's a certain mystique about the country. People still love to come out here and see what it's like. You know, we have a couple of big longhorns out here in front of the store. And we have uh, a little burrow and some miniature horses and uh, a lamb and that sort of thing. People can buy feed and feed them while they're out here shopping. Their kids can get the full kind of farm experience. You know, we do hay rides. We've got a big uh, longhorn, Texas longhorn, that we put a saddle on and people can get their pictures taken on him. So it's a fun experience. It's more than just coming out and shopping. What's your top selling product? Is it the sausage? Um, you know what? I'm, I'm going to say our top selling product is probably a, a product that we call peppered pork tenderloin. It is a pork product. It's it's the loin. It's the most tender cut of the of the the hog, and uh, we lightly salt and pepper those. Put them in a smokehouse, let them cook, and I tell you what, they are absolutely amazing. We use them for charcuterie boards. You slice it thin and put it with like little crackers and cheeses and that sort of thing and boy you talk about for charcuterie that peppered pork tenderloin is the ticket brother <laughs> well robbie if you ever want to send us some of your products to review i mean we we welcome that I'm all just right kidding. We'll, i'm just kidding we'll do it <laughs> and, Shoot address sometime all right thank you so much today robbie thank you yeah i enjoyed it Homesteading or self-reliant living is seeing an upsurge in the post-pandemic world. That's according to experts at the Food Independence Summit. Jeff Lauterbach, a reporter for the Epoch Times, has been following this. We spoke with him to learn more about the resurgence of this traditional way of life. Jeff Lauterbach, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jeff, what are some of the factors underlying the resurgence of homesteading in America? Well, we've seen it at, uh, I, I covered the Food Independence Summit at uh, Ohio's Amish country here. It's been in the last week and a half, two weeks ago, and um, those stories are detailed on the Epic Times. And the common theme about it is, it's not just COVID. Uh, you know, people talk about how COVID disrupted the supply chains and people suddenly couldn't openly get their groceries as normal at the grocery store, they started realizing that, you know, I need to grow tomatoes, I need to learn how to garden, and some people, you know, have gotten into chickens. But it's over the generations, um, you know, you think back in the, obviously the 1800s, but even World War II, uh, 1950s, it was more common for people to have land and to be self-sufficient or to sustain themselves with by growing their own food. But we've gotten away from that over the years because of society. And now people are starting to realize that, hey, you know, the food might not always be readily available and, and I need to be able to learn how to do things for myself. What do you think the future of homesteading in America looks like? Do you think we'll see a lot more of this? Well, that was uh, addressed at the Food Independence Summit also by the experts who they're seeing that. They're seeing uh, in waves people wanting to get uh, move from the city to the country uh, or at least on the outskirts of town, uh, get a half acre, an acre, two acres, be able to uh, at least garden. And when you, I think people have the misconception that sustainable living means you go completely off grid and uh, you know, get rid of all technology and go uh, get 50 acres and be in a remote cabin. It's not all about that. 
you can uh, there in New York City, you can uh, grow a tomato plant on your, uh, uh, you know, outside or have a tower garden inside. You can, uh, if if you get a half acre, you you know you get raised beds, learn how to garden. If you want, get chickens. Uh, more people are realizing that that they just need to uh, be able to look out for themselves kind of like uh, the way they did in their great-grandparents' age. Jeff, what suggestions do you have for somebody looking to get into homesteading at this time? Well, and I'm, I'm as novice as they come, and that's why I'm fascinated with this topic because not only am I, uh, for Epic Times, I cover the RFK Junior campaign, but I'm writing a lot about sustainable living, and it's a personal uh, passion, too. The last year, I've just felt a uh, calling and to, you know, go out, uh, find a, I'm looking for a property where I could get uh, an acre or two and be able to garden and, and become more self or become more sustainable. And so it's all about starting the theme at the food independence summit was starting small, you know, don't uh, do everything at once because that's not possible and go to events like that. There are several events around the country, like the food independence summit, and there's also lots of experts. I mean, we're in a great age where you could YouTube, you could learn how to do anything on YouTube pretty much. So that at least whets your appetite and points you in the right direction. So start small, that's the theme, and uh, surround yourself with a community of support. Maybe I'll have to get myself a tomato plant. Jeff Lauterbach, national reporter for the Epoch Times, thank you. Thank you. California's cost of living report reveals that $80,000 a year is considered low income in Orange County. That's an increase of $4,000 since last year. It makes Orange County the most expensive place to live in all of Southern California. The average median single household income for Orange County is just under $130,000 per year. In Los Angeles County, the low income bracket for single residents lands around $70,000. The area's median income for that demographic is just under $100,000. The cost of living has increased in most California counties. Statewide, the median single household income in California is now $110,000. News reports say California remains among the top three most expensive states to live in nationally, topped only by New York and Hawaii. Dock workers along Canada's western Pacific coast are resuming talks today. The aim is to try and end their first strike in three decades. Union President Rob Ashton reacts. So my committee must go back to work because we're here to the end. We do not plan to leave the bargaining table. We expect the BCMEA here all day, all night until a deal is done so our people can go back to work with a fair negotiated deal for all of us because that's where we belong is back to work. Some 7,500 dock workers went on strike Saturday. The strike threatened work at two of Canada's busiest ports, Vancouver and Prince Rupert. Those are key gateways for exporting the country's natural resources and bringing in raw materials. The walkout could have serious consequences for Canada's economy and small businesses. When we return, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen plans to visit China this week. It's not clear who she'll be meeting with there. And Hong Kong police issue arrest warrants for eight overseas activists. That's for alleged violations of the Beijing-imposed national security law. We'll have the details soon when we return.
Welcome back. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen plans to travel to Beijing on Thursday. This is the second trip by a top U.S. official in recent weeks. Here's more about what's on the agenda. A senior Treasury official said Sunday that Yellen will meet with senior Chinese officials on a broad range of issues. Those include U.S. concerns about the impact of China's new anti-spying law on foreign firms that operate there. They also say Yellen's visit is part of a push by President Joe Biden to stabilize the relationship between the world's two largest economies and minimize the risk of mistakes when disagreements arise. China's finance ministry on Monday confirmed Yellen's visit from July 6th to the 9th. It comes just weeks after Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited Beijing and agreed with Chinese leader Xi Jinping to ensure the two countries' rivalry does not veer into conflict. Biden later referred to Xi as a dictator, resulting in loud protests from China, but analysts say the remark had little impact on efforts to improve ties. As the world's two largest economies, we have a responsibility to work together on global issues. According to the Treasury official who spoke on condition of anonymity, Yellen plans to tell Beijing that Washington will continue to defend human rights and its own national security interests through targeted actions against China, but wants to work together on urgent challenges like climate change and debt distress faced by many countries. The official declined to give details on which Chinese officials Yellen would meet. And now what's going on halfway around the globe? Here's some headlines from Asia. Hong Kong police issued arrest warrants for eight activists living overseas. They're accused of national security offenses with a reward of over $1.2 million each. Those on the list include high-profile pro-democracy activists and former lawmakers. Beijing imposed the national security law in Hong Kong in 2020 amid widespread protests and international criticism. So far, 260 individuals have been arrested, almost 80 convicted. The U.S. is urging Americans to reconsider travel to China. That's due to the risk of arbitrary law enforcement, travel bans, and wrongful detention by Chinese authorities. The advisory comes after Chinese police raided several U.S. companies in China and sentenced a U.S. citizen to life on espionage charges in May. The advisory said Beijing's new foreign relations law and anti-espionage law could be used to arrest foreigners. Potential violations include participating in demonstrations, sending messages critical of the regime, or simply researching topics deemed sensitive. Taiwan's military is holding a drill on its southern coast. It's at a highly strategic spot for monitoring Chinese military activity and a potential landing spot in the case of an invasion. The exercise focuses on repelling an invasion with mobile missiles. Beijing has been threatening to take over Taiwan by force and has increased military pressure over the past few years. That's despite never having ruled the island. Turning to Japan, a blast ripped through a building in downtown Tokyo today. The fire was soon contained. Only four were slightly injured. The cause of the explosion remains unclear. Witnesses said they saw flames on the building's second floor and smelled gas. The incident occurred next to a train station packed with bars and restaurants. Residents said they were scared by the blast. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. After the break, Russia says the war efforts in Ukraine are full steam ahead, saying the short-lived Wagner Rebellion made no significant impact on the situation on the ground. 
And Ukraine's top military officials visit a nuclear power plant. He's assessing the risk at another power plant, the one Russia occupies. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Thanks for staying with us. CIA Director William Burns says last month's mutiny in Russia was proving challenging to the Russian state. At a UK press conference Saturday, he said it shows President Putin's war in Ukraine is a strategic failure. NTD's Kost Hemenes has more. At the address in shipping Norton, England, Burns went on to say that Russia exposed its military weakness, which will damage the Russian economy for years to come while the NATO military alliance was growing bigger and stronger. It is striking that Prigozhin preceded his actions with a scathing indictment of the Kremlin's mendacious rationale for the invasion of Ukraine and of the Russian military leadership's conduct of the war. The impact of those words and those actions will play out for some time, a vivid reminder of the corrosive effect of Putin's war on his own society and his own regime. According to Burns, the mutiny was an internal Russian affair, adding the United States has had and will have no part in. In his speech, Burns also spoke about Sino-US economic relations. In today's world, no country wants to find itself at the mercy of a cartel of one for critical minerals and technologies, especially a country that has demonstrated the will and capacity to deepen and weaponize those dependencies. The answer to that is not to decouple from an economy like China's, which would be foolish, but to sensibly de-risk and diversify by securing resilient supply chains, protecting our technological edge, and investing in industrial capacity. Burns also added that this affection in Russia with the war in Ukraine was creating a rare opportunity to recruit spies, which the U.S. would seize and not let go to waste. Kost Hemenes, NTD News. Russia says the brief mutiny by the Wagner mercenary group hasn't affected its war efforts in Ukraine. Here's Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogu making his first comments about the short-lived rebellion. I want to touch upon another issue. Our Supreme Commander has already given comprehensive commentary on it. It is about the attempt to destabilize the situation in Russia on June 23rd to 25th. These plans failed primarily because the personnel of the armed forces were faithful to their oath and their military duty. The provocation did not affect the actions of any groups involved in the Ukraine military operation. The troops courageously and selflessly continued carrying out the tasks entrusted to them. Shoigu says Ukrainian units are launching unsuccessful attacks, adding that the Russian armed forces have destroyed 15 aircraft, three helicopters, and over 900 pieces of armored equipment, including 16 Leopard tanks. He says that's practically 100% of the tanks of this type supplied by Poland and Portugal. Meanwhile, the Kremlin recently declined to answer questions about another Russian general, Sergei Surovikin. Surovikin is deputy commander of Russian forces in Ukraine. His status and location have not been made public since the Wagner Group mutiny. More from Ukraine, the country's commander-in-chief visited the northwestern Rivna nuclear power plant to gather information. 
Here's footage he published yesterday. The video was posted on social media. It said the commander wants to be ready in case of a catastrophic event at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. He also wants to increase communication between the military and the energy sector. The Ukrainian president on Saturday warned that Zaporizhia is still a serious threat and said Russia was technically ready to cause an explosion there. He cited Ukrainian intelligence as the source of his information. The president later held a meeting with the top military commander and nuclear power officials at the Rivna nuclear power plant. A French town is recouping itself after rioters damaged the town hall and other public buildings. Residents and officials gathered on Monday in Persan to assess the way forward. The population was very touched and very moved, unfortunately, by what happened to us during these last nights. It's also normal to take time with them to be by their side, to be with them to explain things and to show them that the mayor's office is still standing, that the municipal teams are still standing, and that we are going to continue to rebuild our town hall, our municipal police, and of course revive our conservatory, which suffered a little less damage, but damaged nonetheless. The Persan mayor gave a short speech and a violinist performed music during a brief ceremony. Groups of youth attacked the town hall and municipal police station, partially burning them down. The town's conservatory was also damaged. It's one of 99 town halls and other public buildings that the French government says were attacked in the riots. The violence flared in French cities after a 17-year-old was shot dead on Tuesday in the suburbs of Paris. A grandmother of the teen has called for the riots to stop. The last surviving member of the French commando unit that waded ashore on D-Day died on Monday. He was 100 years old. He fought alongside Allied troops to free France from Nazi forces. Leon Gautier was one of nearly 180 French Green Berets who stormed the Normandy beaches defended by Hitler's forces in 1944. He and Allied fighters secured a German bunker before pushing inland. Later in life, Gautier would return to live only a few hundred meters from the bunker. He had been too young to join the army during World War II, so he enrolled in the Navy. As Germans swept across the northern half of France in 1940, he was on board one of the last French warships to sail for Britain to join the Free French Forces. A German court is hearing a case about COVID-19 vaccine injury. A 58-year-old is suing vaccine provider BioNTech. He's seeking around $164,000 in compensation. Yes, this is the first date in the hearing against the company BioNTech. It is about the issue of vaccine injury. The plaintiff lost his eyesight in the right eye after being vaccinated. Everything points to it being caused by the vaccination, and we want to get him a compensation for his pain and suffering. The man is also seeking public acknowledgement of the damage. His lawyers said there are around 300 other vaccine injury cases coming to court soon. Sources have said some of the EU's bulk purchase agreements with vaccine makers contained full or partial liability waivers. It could force EU governments to bear some of the costs of damage compensation. According to BioNTech, some 1.5 billion people received the COVID-19 shot across the world, including more than 64 million people in Germany. After the break, a leading sports psychologist details the mental pressure professional tennis players face. The Wimbledon tennis tournament begins today and tests their resilience. 
And Canada's small ferry boats celebrate the country's birthday with a ballet performance. We'll have more on the Canada Day tradition after the break. Welcome back, everyone. The Wimbledon Championship starts today, and players are facing a unique mental challenge, according to a leading sports psychologist. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on how the players deal on and off the court. Tennis is the world's most mentally challenging sport for elite athletes, according to Katie Mobed. She spent the last decade helping some of the UK's most successful athletes. She's worked with England and Manchester United striker Marcus Rashford and Great Britain's Olympians for the last three games. At this week's Wimbledon tennis tournament, players will be feeling the pressure. They're going to be out there on their own, in the court, under pressure, under the spotlights, with thousands if not millions watching them. They're probably only going to be playing tennis for about 10 minutes of every hour they're on court. And the rest of the time is time between games, between sets, changing ends, where they're alone with their thoughts. Mobed says the nature of tennis poses unique mental challenges that make the sport emotionally taxing for players. Tennis is arguably the loneliest and most mentally challenging sport out there. For the likes of Alcaraz and Djokovic, Sabalenka, Alfie Hewitt, they are facing what you could describe as mental torture through this Wimbledon tournament. But there are ways for players to mitigate the effects of the pressure on their mental health. I always encourage athletes to you know, speak to friends and family before big matches, for friends and family to remind them what they love about them as a human being, not just as a performer to receive messages of support that focus on the things they can control. Mobed cited three-time Grand Slam champion Andy Murray. Player fought back from a possible career-ending injury and returned to the top 40 rankings. I think over the years he's worked very hard to learn to channel that and get that working in the right direction so he gets that strength in its sweet spot where he's able to unleash all of his power and purpose and passion to be able to play some phenomenal tennis. This year's Wimbledon Championship starts on Monday, July 3rd. The finals will take place on Sunday, July 16th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. More Wimbledon news. Tennis star Nick Kyrgios won't be competing. He pulled out after failing to recover from a torn ligament in his wrist. On Instagram Sunday, he said he wasn't able to fully recover from surgery in time. Kyrgios made it to the final last year before being beaten by Novak Djokovic. The 28-year-old Australian hasn't played in a Grand Slam this year. Injuries forced him to miss both the Australian Open and French Open. You're probably starting to see more mangoes at the grocery store. They're in season, so be sure to grab a few. The sweet fruit offers extraordinary health benefits. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. The mango is a member of the cashew family. It originated in the Himalayan foothills of India more than 5,000 years ago. 
The mango has been prized in indigenous medicine for its numerous healing properties. There are more than 300 different varieties of mangoes in the world. Let's look at some of the specific health benefits of this magnificent fruit. Phytonutrients are substances produced by plants to protect themselves. Many are bioactive compounds known to promote human health and manage chronic diseases. Their properties include anti-cancer, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, and antiviral. These compounds play an essential role in addressing the increasing prevalence of metabolic syndrome. This is a cluster of risk factors associated with the development of heart disease, heart failure, stroke, and diabetes. According to Jihadi Namali, a cardiologist at Johns Hopkins, nearly one in three Americans have metabolic syndrome. Next, let's look at what mangoes can do for the heart. Mangoes are rich in fiber, vitamins, potassium, and magnesium. According to the American Heart Association, this can help reduce the risk of heart disease, including blood pressure and pulse regulation. Next, let's look at how mangoes can fight cancer. Mangoes are rich in beta-carotene. This is a pigment responsible for its bright yellow-orange color. Beta-carotene is an antioxidant known to fight cell-damaging free radicals that can potentially lead to cancer. A study was published in the Journal of Lipids in 2017. It said that mangiferin, which is a mango plant polyphenol, can protect against a variety of human cancers. This includes lung, colon, and breast cancer. Next, let's look at how mangoes can improve brain health. Mangiferin has been shown to improve long-term object recognition memory in rats. Scientists feel this has the potential for preventative and therapeutic use especially for memory impairment diseases such as schizophrenia, dementia, amnesia, and Alzheimer's. According to the Harvard School of Public Health, the vitamin B6 in mangoes may help with brain function. It can do this by lowering high levels of the chemical homocystin. Homocystin is linked to a higher incidence of dementia, Alzheimer's, and cognitive decline. And finally, let's look at how mangoes can help you to lose weight. In addition to being low in fat, mangoes can aid in weight loss. This is because their rich fiber content helps to promote the sensation of satiety. One study reported that mangiferin protected rats against weight gain from a high-fat diet. It also improved glucose and insulin responses, which lowers the risk of obesity. An ancient Greek altar was found at an archaeological site in Italy's Sicily Island. It was used for family worship and dates back at least 2,000 years. Local authorities say the altar was likely in use at the height of the Hellenic cultural influence just before the rise of the Roman Empire in the first century before Christ. It was buried for centuries by earth and vegetation, the area of the southern Acropolis at the Segesta site, which is in the west of the island. Sodesta is renowned for its 5th century BC temple. It's an ancient Greek city nestled between mountains. A water ballet performed not by swimmers, but a fleet of small ferries. The performance celebrated Canada Day, the country's birthday on the first day of July. Ten small white ferries sailed into Vancouver's False Creek Waterway. The vessels usually ferry tourists and locals, but on Saturday delighted crowds of visitors and residents with their show. They made the slow turns and synchronized movements before lining up in tight formation. The Canada Day Ferry Dance has been going on for more than 30 years in the region, marking a unique summer tradition. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers. Mm -hmm.